Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 as we continue our study through the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, we saw that the earth was without form and void, and then God spoke and creation took form. In verse 26, he said, let us make man and give him dominion. He gave man some responsibility. In verse 28, God spoke with man, speaking of a relationship, and said, be fruitful and multiply. In verses 28 to 31, man was giving a perfect environment, best suited for him. God said it was very good. Thus begins the first dispensation of the Bible, the dispensation of innocence. Man was created in innocence, placed in a perfect environment, subjected to a simple test, warned of the consequences of disobedience. So what is a dispensation? Well, it's a theological concept. The short definition is what I'm going to give you, so you don't have to worry about going into a long, because we could spend all night on this. It's a period of time when man is tested in his obedience to God. So created in his image, in his likeness, man is personal. He desires relationship. He's rational. He has the capacity to reason. In Isaiah chapter 1, it says, uh, he begins by telling the nation of Israel, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. And he's moral. He has choice or volition. He has a free will. In Genesis chapter 2, the Bible gave us more details and expanded the view of creation. We saw that God breathed into man the Holy Spirit, and he became a living creature. In verses 15 to 17, let me read those to you of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat, you will surely die. God said, Take care of the garden. Important for us to note that God was... Put, that Adam was put into the garden with the purpose to work it. Work is a good thing. Work is something that we all um, benefit from when we do it. And it's something, haven't you felt good sometimes after a good hard days of work and you come home and you sit down and you say, wow, that was a good day. We got a lot accomplished today. But work was part of God's perfect plan for man. Work is something good and it's part of what Adam's perfect existence before the fall. It's important because sometimes we get kind of confused with that. We say that work came in at the fall. No, work was part of the plan in the very beginning. In verse 19, he gives him a simple commandment, the presence of the tree, the presence of a choice for Adam. And it was good for Adam to be a creature of free will, to prove that he had a choice, and that's why we have the tree. God wants our love and our obedience to be of choice. He wants it to be from our heart, to be um, the, the love of obedience. And it's important that our love for others be that of a choice and not just feelings. And guys, listen up. It's important for you to love your wives because you have chosen to love them, not because it felt good today to love them. Okay, Because you need to make that choice so that you'll be able to love them and help them through the hard parts of life. So the, this love of choice, it's not feelings. This is also the first covenant mentioned in the Bible. Another theological term. God's establishment of a relationship 
with responsibility between himself and a human. In this case, it's Adam, and it's called the uh, Edenic Covenant. He said, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion over the animals, and care for the garden. Other covenants will be coming, Noah, Abraham, there are many of them. And then in verse 18 of chapter 2, his only not good. It's not good for man to be alone. He now creates the perfect helper, fit for him, the ESV says. The New King James says, a helper comparable to him. But the NLT says it this way, a helper who is just right for him. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the third chapter of Genesis, the fall of man, would you help us to glean what we can use today in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read chapter 3, the first seven verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it and its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the serpent in verse 1, at this point, he's not a slimy snake. That happened when the curse was given. The scriptures refer to him as the angel of light. Exodus tells us that before his fall, he was a very special angel, of the highest rank and prominence, and that he was probably the worship leader. In Isaiah 14, we're told that he wanted to ascend and be as high as or greater than God to set his will against God's will. He's described here as crafty or cunning, the New King James says. But a better translation would be the word shrewd. And shrewd carries with it the understanding that it's for his self-gain, for his self-blessing. That's what he's looking for. He wants to be sharp and clever in a selfish way. And isn't that our battle in life today? The same for us. Obedience to God or our own fleshly desire, the way that we want to do things. We will see more about that as we go through the study. In verse chapter 1, in in the second half, he starts with a simple question. It's called the religious question. Hath God said? And isn't that the same for us today? Doesn't the enemy come to us and says, has God really said this is where you're supposed to be? Has God really said this is the relationship you're supposed to be in? Has God really said, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, love your brothers, feed the poor? Has God really said those things? Paul even used this as an example and an illustration of false teachers in 2 Corinthians. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
you are pursued by Satan. You are pursued by the enemy. He wants you. He wants to mess with you. He wants to hinder you. He wants to keep you out of the word. And we could go on and on and on and talk about you are being pursued by the enemy just as he's pursued Eve and Adam here. To the woman, Satan brought his temptation against the woman because he perceived, I think, that she was more vulnerable um, the, uh, because the, uh, the commandment to not eat from the tree was given to Adam and not to her. She did not receive the command, but she received it from her husband. And he went to directly through Adam, and that was back what we read in, in chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. Eve's answer begins a dialogue with the enemy. Begins a dialogue with the serpent. That's not a good idea. When the enemy is coming after you, when he is coming to bother you, it's not good to get in a discussion with him. We should see the warnings here. We know when to stop it. But sometimes, don't we want to just see how far we can go? To say, well, you know, that's not really that bad. It's really not that much against scriptures. But, ha- but I'm sure you've said, you know, it's not that bad. The only conversation we are to have with Satan is found in Jude verse 9. The Lord rebuke you. When you're in a battle, and it's a spiritual battle, you need to call upon the name of the Lord, and you turn the rebuke of Satan over to him. Don't do it yourself. The Lord rebuke you is the way that we need to answer him. In verse 3, we see that Eve does know God's word. But man has added something to it. Nor shall you touch it. God didn't say that. He said, don't eat. He didn't say, don't touch. Man added to that. Man confused it. Did Adam enhance the word? Did the serpent touch the tree and say, see, I didn't die? We don't want to expand or we don't want to add into the word of God. It's important for us to take his word literally and simply as possible. Sometimes we do have to look at the cultural impact and some of the things that pertain to the word, but when the word, teach the word simple, Pastor Chuck used to say, right? And when the, when the simple is, is there, just take it at its word. Don't try to make it complicated. Paul warns us to give no place to the devil. The serpent challenges Eve in verse 4. Now he's challenging God's word. He questions God's word, creates doubt and confusion. How he, how he outright, now he's outright challenging it. He is challenging the goodness of God and the consequences of sin. Why would God tell you not to eat that tree if it's going to make you wise? Do you think God is not good? He's keeping you back from something. He's not letting you enjoy life. And don't worry, you certainly won't die if you eat from it. Challenging the goodness of God and the consequences of sin. He wants Eve to forget about what God said you will die. He doesn't want her to be thinking about that. To give up the consequences of sin for a pleasure. You remember that Hebrews 11, when talking about Moses, had this to say, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So often sin, sin comes at us, and for just a season, we think about, just for a moment, what would it be like to have that, or do this, or do that? 
Wouldn't that be something for us to, to think about? Moses didn't. We're encouraged not to. Satan then adds a little truth to the lies that he's been saying. He says, your eyes will be opened. And we see in verse 7, their eyes were opened. God's word was questioned, contradicted, and its motive was slandered. In verse six, we see, in verse six, we see that the humans failed their first test of faith, choosing to act on what they say rather than the obedience to God's word, choosing to walk by sight and not by faith. This faithlessness has plagued man for all of his history. For then it resulted in a broken relationship with God. God is going to fix it. God is going to come and he's going to take care of it. But at this point, that relationship is broken. And how many of us have had a broken relationship because we have decided that we were going to sin? John describes it like this in 1 John. First, she gave in to the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was good for food. Second, she gave into the lust of the eyes. It was a pleasant tree. It was good to look at. And third, she gave into the pride of life, desirable to make one wise. The New Testament teaches us that we must walk by faith and not by sight. It says in Hebrews, but without faith it is impossible to please him. And whatever is of faith, whatever is not of faith is sin, we're told in Romans chapter 14. Their eyes were open. They were exposed. Their shame was exposed. And the age of innocent had come. innocence had come to an end. The way they saw themselves was different. The way they saw the world around them was different. After the fall, everything looked worse. The first dispensation had ended. The second dispensation now begins. And it's called the dispensation of conscience or moral responsibility. You can look up dispensations and some of you can get together down at Bill's and talk about dispensations and when they start and when they end. And you can have a ball with that. There's books written on it. There's lots of things you can go into. We're not going to go into that. But just to mention that there are periods of time when God is dealing with man in a way uh, that, is, that is kind of put together in a time slot. So man had now sinned. And we're going to see the first promise of redemption coming in the next passages that we look. But man will receive the consequences of his sin expelled in verses 22 and 24. So what's happened here is we've gone from the theoretical to the experiential knowledge of good and evil. God had told them this is what would happen if you eat from the tree, good and evil. Now they have experienced it. And so they know they've moved into the dispensation of moral responsibility. Now their responsibility is to do all that they know is good and to refrain from all that they know that is bad. God will institute a way to approach him with a sacrifice of blood. They tried to cover their nakedness, but like us, they weren't very wise. They used fig, fig leaves. Fig leaves are not what you make your clothes out of. You know, you say, what is the first, uh, 
what is the first business mentioned in the Bible? Well, first I thought it was going to be the fashion industry, because here they were trying to sew things together. But it actually was farming. Farming started before the fall. Then the, it seems like the fashion industry started. And, you know, there's lots of people that claim that was the first, the first business. But, you know, I guess it's farming. Only the Lord can cover our nakedness. But have you ever tried to cover something up when you messed up? Have you ever done something? We all did it as a kid with our parents. Some of us have done it with husbands to with our wives. Um, some of you have done it with your friends, with your fellow, with your fellow people here in the church. You've said something or you did something, and, and then all of a sudden you start to cover it up. The cover-up usually takes a lot more energy and a lot more um, effort uh, to keep it straight. And then you've got to keep the cover-up straight, and that gets really complicated. So only the Lord can cover our nakedness. In Revelations 3, 5, to the church of Sardis, he write, Jesus writes, The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And then to the church of Laodicea, he writes, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and slave to uh, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now God, so we've been being pursued by Satan. He came after Eve, challenged the word of God, questioned the word of God, um, challenged the results that, uh, of, of what God had said. And he has been pursuing you and he's been pursuing me. I would imagine if I asked you for a show of hands, how many of you have been hassled by the enemy in the last year, in the last month, in the last week. He is still pursuing you. You have been pursued by the enemy. But now we're going to talk about being pursued by God. Doesn't that sound better? Let's see what he does. So the next few verses, being pursued by God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you to not eat? The man said, The woman you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Interesting stuff. But they heard him coming in the cool of the night. He desired fellowship with them. He knows what they've done. But you know, this is said in such a casual way, it must have been common for God and Adam to have fellowship and then Adam and Eve to have fellowship today. Do we ever try to hide ourselves from the Lord? And how do we do that? They hid themselves knowing their attempt to cover themselves had failed. They were not showing off their new fashions. They didn't come out and say, look what we made. They knew that what they did was wrong. They were trying to cover their things up. Their works had failed. I think the way that we hide from God is different. 
I think that we know that he's everywhere present at all the time. So he's here. But we hide ourselves by staying out of his word. We hide ourselves by not going together and having fellowship in church or Bible studies or home groups. And we hide ourselves from God by avoiding those relationships where we know they'll be called, we'll be called out. You know, you don't want to go to the principal's office, do you? You know, that's the one you want to stay away from. Okay, well, we know that that's where we'll be called out. That's where we know that we can't say the dog ate my homework. You know, we can get by with the teacher, some teachers, but the principal for sure. So that's the way we kind of stay out and hide from the Lord. So he asked them, where are you? God knew where they were. He didn't have to ask the question. He knew. But where are you? And how we see God in this and how we see his words are very important. Do we see him as a condemning and judging commander? Or do we see him as a loving, forgiving God and Father? Do you know, Adam and Eve had never experienced a loving, forgiving Father before. It was the first time. The first time they had to go to God for forgiveness. So they hadn't experienced that. But what was their understanding of who God was? In verses 10 and 11, sin made Adam afraid of God's presence and afraid of God's voice. And ever since that, we have been running from his presence, not wanting to listen to his word. Man changed. God didn't change. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. God didn't change here. He needed to learn that the safest place from the wrath of God is the wounded heart of God. When we deserve the wrath of God, when we fall short, the place we should run to is the heart of God. We should run to him as quickly as we can. We should run into his arms. God, ha- God has, uh, so often does with us, asked Adam, who told you you were naked? With us, he might say to us, what are you doing here? as we've wandered into a place where we shouldn't be. Why are you thinking that thought as we're thinking some revengeful or bitter thoughts about somebody who messed with us? Or this one, why did you repeat that? Why did you repeat that? God often comes to us and he asks us not to condemn us. He was giving Adam and he gives you and he gives me the opportunity right away to confess and repent. But we don't. Adam didn't come clean and repent. And haven't we all done that? Haven't we all been convicted by the Holy Spirit? Haven't we come to a place where we know, haven't our friends called us out on something? Haven't we been convicted by a message at church? Haven't we, doing our devotions, reading his word, had the Holy Spirit convict us of something? And we, it, we decide that we have answers. God asked him straight out, Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? This was not a covering problem. It wasn't a fig leaf problem. It wasn't a self-esteem problem. And it wasn't a fear problem. It was a sin problem. That's what God was calling them out for. And only after he dealt with this could God uh, give them a new wardrobe, 
and reestablish that relationship. Even though Adam sinned, God was looking for him. I asked you a few minutes ago, how many of you have been pursued by the enemy? Quite a few of you raised your hands. But I'll bet you just as many of you, maybe even more, could tell me how many of you have been pursued by God. How many of you know that God has pursued you? Maybe that's why the reason you're here. Maybe that's the reason why you're a Christian. Maybe that's why you're um, doing the ministry that you're doing. Because God pursued you. He wouldn't let you up until you surrendered to that ministry that he called you to. He wouldn't let you get away from the things that he wants you to do with your family until you you surrender to him. God has pursued you, and he will continue to pursue us. And thank goodness for that. So, verses 12 to 13, let's see what Adam did. He played the blame game. And I know none of you have done this. None of you have ever done that, you know. I don't know what happened to the car. You know, I don't know how it got all scratched up. Must have been, somebody must have just scraped it as they walked by it, you know. He played the blame game. He blamed the woman. The woman blamed the serpent. Sometimes we do that with our friends and our families. Trying to justify our mistakes. When it would be so much easier just to walk up to them and say, Hey, I messed up. I was back in my car out and I, rode, I ran over your bike. You know, sorry I did that. And just own up to it. But instead, we find ways to do it. You don't know how many carts, electric carts around here, we come in on a Monday morning and they're smashed up. We get the whole staff together and we say, come on, just let us know when you're not in trouble. Who did it? Dead silence. <laughs> Nobody has ever confessed to, to damaging one of the carts. Isn't that right, Richard? Nobody, no, nobody big hole in the headlight and I didn't do it but never with God don't we blame him sometimes for things you know God right now I've really been praying hard about this I've even fasted I've even called people up and have them praying with me I've got the whole family praying about it you're not answering my prayers God it's your fault this is happening it's your fault this is going on with my children because you're not answering my prayers. God, you know, this is really a bad situation that I'm in right now and you didn't protect me from it. You didn't warn me not to do this. But here I am in this bad situation. We even blame God for things. We, we, we get sometimes angry with him. Us in leadership and ministry or in Christian schools, God, you're not honoring my work. You're not honoring the ministry. I'm trying to serve you. You're not doing that. We tend to want to blame so many things. God is looking for, he pursues us with the Holy Spirit. He convicts us with the Holy Spirit. He wants us to say, yes, I did that, and I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. He wants us to carry that out into the church. He wants us to carry it out in our family. Yes, I know I let you down. Please forgive me. I'll do better next time. So we need to work on those things. He doesn't want us to do the blame game. So in summary, the immediate effects of the fall are this. The discovery that something is wrong with oneself. And that still happens today when we're convicted of sin. The effort to hide shame with a self-provided cover. The fear of God which promotes one to hide. And the persistence in in excusing instead of confessing.
In verses 14 to 19, God now lays out his second covenant, the, the Adamic covenant. And let's read that from starting with verse 14 through verse um, 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enemy between you and the woman, in better English translation, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because you... because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the, the plants of the field. By the sweat of your faith, face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, from, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I wonder how it was farming before and after the fall. Can you imagine the relationship? Here's the garden. Everything's perfect. Everything's going right. I imagine you just go out there and say, weeds be gone. And the weeds were gone. Or, or maybe well, there probably weren't any weeds. So you didn't have to worry about that. Okay? And then now we've got this change in the way that Adam is going to have to work. We see in verse 15 the first promise of a redeemer. All from Eve's seed. And we will trace that for you as we continue the journey through the Bible from Abel to Seth to Noah to Shem to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and then finally Jesus will get there. So we're going to follow that as we go through the Bible. But look at the changed state of the woman because of the fall. The principle of Adam's headship as husband was established before the fall in chapter 2, verses 18 and verses 22. So the curse on Eve makes it much harder for women to submit and follow the God's institution of male headship in the home because it was perfect and then it was corrupted. In verses 17 to 19, oh wait a minute, let me finish that. You know that in the um, animal world in general, I mean, ladies, this, you know, I'm, some of you ladies already know this. Do you know that women experience more pain in birth than any other animal? Other animals can have babies and just pop out and there they go. And they stand up and they wander on and the mother gets up and goes back to going back into the garden and eating the grain or whatever. But women, it is, it is more intense, it is more painful than anybody in the animal kingdom. I found that was an interesting thought. I never, I never thought of that in, in uh, all the years of my life. The burden of work. <laughs> the, burden, the burden of work. Because the earth is cursed, we also see in these verses 17 and 19, the sorrow of life and the shortness of life. Those are things that are the results of this curse. It is, no, it is interesting to note, though, that God gave this promise of redemption before he gave the judgment. He said, there is going to be a way. There is going to be uh, a, a way for salvation to come. He gave us that promise and that hope before he gave us the consequences of the fall. 
In Galatians Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And do you know that Jesus, in his death and in his suffering on the cross, he actually took every one of these curses upon himself? Let me just read you some of them. Sin brought pain in childbirth. No one knew more pain than Jesus did when he went through his suffering. Sin brought conflict. Jesus endured great conflict to bring us our salvation. Thorns came. Jesus endured a crown of thorns to bring us our salvation. Sin brought sweat. Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in the garden. Sin brought sorrow. Jesus became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, to save us, Isaiah 53. Sin brought death. Jesus tasted death for everyone that we might have eternal life. So all of those curses, Jesus took, them for, took, took upon himself. And up to, up to now, Eve has not been named. She's just now getting her name. She's been called a helper, a female, a woman, and a wife. Now Eve, it means the mother of all things living. I wonder if when Adam, remember Adam was given the, the, the privilege of naming all the animals, whatever he wanted to call them, and was he given the privilege of naming Eve? It sounds like it was here. Why would he pick the mother of all living? Was it that he understood that verse 15, that Adam had faith that a Messiah was coming, that there would be a way of salvation, and so he knew that his wife would be the mother of all living. In verse 21, 20 and 21, the, okay, verse 20, the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins of, and he clothed them. So God makes tunics of skins for them. In order for Adam and Eve to be clothed, a sacrifice had to be made. An animal had to die. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Hebrews 9. I believe it was a lamb. It seems like that would be the right thing to do. It keeps you know everything together, but it's not really told to us. So man's religion was the good works that he was trying to do. He was sewing fig leaves together to get away from his nakedness. But we, but we know there is a God's perfect provision through Jesus, and we see the beginning of that scarlet thread that runs throughout the whole Bible with this verse as we continue to do that. So God has been pursuing us. God pursued Adam. He pursued Eve. He wanted to give them an opportunity to confess. He has been pursuing mankind throughout history as we go through the Bible. We're going to see how he did it at the time of Noah and Abraham and David and all of the history. Then we're going to see how he sent his son. He has been pursuing mankind all along. So you've been pursued by God. Satan is pursuing you and me like a thief who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He's always accusing us before the Father. He's looking for ways to trip us up. In 1 Corinthians we read, For Satan himself transformed himself into an angel of light. I'd really rather have him come to me as a, as a roaring lion than an angel of light, because I can deal with that. Paul, writing to uh, the Thessalonians, said, Therefore, we were going to come to you, even I. Uh, time and again we wanted to come. But Satan hindered us. Satan can hinder us. God is pursuing you, you and me. First, to redeem us from our sin and to have fellowship with us in life. 
He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in, dine with him, and he with me. In Deuteronomy 7, is talking about Israel, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn to your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You know, it'd be interesting sometime to get a whiteboard up here and list, and list our big sins, not the little ones, the ones where we really messed up. Just to see how much God pursued us and how much he loved us. Now, we don't have to do that. I'm not going to do that. And Brandon's not going to do that, okay? But could you imagine if we were to really consider those horrible, rotten, terrible sins that we've committed and not had a pursuing God that was coming after you, not having one who loves us, who's coming to and asking us, what did you do? I did this. I confess it, please forgive me, restore me, and do my due restitution. Another good one for us to see where God um, pursues us is Psalms 139. I'm just going to read a few verses. I'd encourage you to read it over tonight before you go to bed, especially if you need to know that God is pursuing you. If you've been feeling the other pursuit from the enemy, and you need to have knowledge that God is pursuing you, read Psalms 139 tonight with with your tea before you go to bed. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know, my, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts afar off. You search my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attend it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand leads me. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. God pursued you. God pursued me. What's our part in this battle? Pursued by the enemy, pursued by God. Our job is to pursue. Take the D off. We are to pursue the Lord. Seek me while I may be found, it says. Set our hearts on things above. Obey him, love him, love others. Search me, O God, and know my heart. In First Chronicles we read, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. In Psalms 14 we read, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Proverbs 8, I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me. How are you doing with your pursuit of God? Are you pursuing him? Are you earnest about it? You're here, that's a good sign. Okay, we love that. But we need to be in pursuit of God. 
In Isaiah 55, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If any of us, if any of you are carrying with you a burden, if you have a sin that you just haven't dealt with, if you have one that you've been sweeping under the carpet with the people around you, the people who love you and care about you, or even trying to hide it from God, He abundantly pardons. He's asking you, the Holy Spirit is convicting you, because He wants to make things right and move on. And so often it seems like, well, I don't think I've done enough penance. I haven't been good enough for long enough to get right with God. All God wants to hear from us is, I'm sorry, forgive me, and let's move on. In Matthew 6, we read, But seek you first the kingdom of his righteousness, and all these things he will add to you. So, to close, we know the enemy is pursuing us. We also know that God is pursuing us. And we know our part is to pursue the Lord. And you know what? I believe you know how. I see the faces around here, and most of you see pretty regularly. You know about daily devotions. You know how to read your Bible. You know about a men's group. You know about a ladies' group. You know about churches here on the mountain. You know how to pursue God. We just need to do it. That's what we need to do. The serpent told Eve, take and eat. Then one day Jesus changed those verbs to verbs of salvation. He did that when he said, take the bread and eat. He took that same concept where the enemy, he turned it around on him. But he only did that after Jesus had lived the world of Adam's curse. Sinless, he became broken and poured out on the cross. And so as we go to communion tonight, as we take the bread and the cup. Think about all that the Lord has done in his pursuit of you. And be thankful. Be thankful that he pursued you and he never gave up. And for those of us who need to feel his presence right now, I know he's pursuing you.